Hello and thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd Fink. Good to connect with you here for the first time in 2021. New year, but a lot of the same stress is still hitting us hard with the pandemic, with politics. Uh, New variants of the coronavirus have arrived in the United States, but there are encouraging signs for an eventual end or reasons to be optimistic and hopeful, but tensions are still high. And this um, talk that I'm sharing today is about frustration, what we know about frustration. And I want to preface this by saying that the talk that I'm going to share for this episode is about finding wisdom in frustration. I recently had a quote shared with me from a friend that said, wisdom destroys suffering. I really think that could have been another name for this podcast. This isn't to minimize people's pain. Uh, This isn't to diminish the challenges that we're facing as a country. This is to say that Despite all these things, I, I want to give people support with knowing who they really are and finding inner peace. I mean, th- that is some good news, that inner peace is not dependent on favorable external circumstances. But they matter. And because they matter, I want to use this, sp- this space to, to begin here with to say that the inequality in, in America and around the world just absolutely has to be solved. Everything is related. I did a podcast, I think it was a year and a half ago now, about climate change that was titled Social Dominance and the Psychology of Climate Change. Because it first emphasizes inequality and the corrosive effect of superiority in society. And I was supposed to do a talk for a nature preserve in Illinois last year, but it was canceled due to the pandemic, postponed actually, and will happen later this spring in May. And the organizer was asking me what I would like to change about the description in the light of the pandemic, in the light of uh, social justice issues. And I said, it's pretty much the same because social dominance and inequality are not separate from climate change and other existential threats. Also not separate from from disease and the public health crises. We need an ethical revolution that takes into consideration all life on this planet. I think that includes the way we treat the earth, the way we treat animals. The logic that we can farm animals and destroy their lives to the tune of billions and billions of animals is flawed thinking. Because if we have the right to do that because of some superiority about us, then it logically follows that those who are superior to me can control me and exploit me. And I don't want that. And I don't think anybody really wants that. So I encourage you as you work towards peace, justice in the world, as we work towards healing these deep divides in the community, 
in our families, to try to be a holistic thinker, to try not to become a single-issue thinker, because we're all connected and everything is connected. I had an experience recently listening to a young friend of mine who I hadn't seen in nearly a year. And in that time, he had adopted some very radical beliefs about the country, about politics. But I listened to him without judgment. I I created some space for him to share and I was genuinely curious about what's been going on in the past year. Once he realized he didn't have to fight me, he started opening up more and, and shared that he had lost his partner, he had lost his home, he had lost his job in the pandemic, he had almost no money for food, and I could see tears filling up in his eyes. And I did my best to try to let him know that whether he succeeds or fails, I care about him. Whether he believes the right thing or he believes the wrong thing, that I have compassion for him. And I noticed that when we finished this conversation, something seemed lighter in his face. And he told me that he had a lot to think about. And he really appreciated the time and the insights and, um, and wanted to rethink some things. But I wasn't demanding it of him. And I, th- I just came away from that recognizing that this kind of dialogue is still not happening. I mean, I talked about dialogue, I dedicated an episode to dialogue, and I've been having these live freer dialogue sessions to try to share this practice, but it's very difficult. So wherever you fall on the divide, if you fall somewhere, I think it's important to remember that shaming doesn't work. If shaming were medicine, we would all be healed and there would be world peace. So we need to do something else. I listened to a podcast recently with Sociology professor Jack Goldstone, who seemed to have a very clear analysis of inequality in America. He studies the history of revolutions around the world for the past 500 years. And he pointed to some serious red flags, the polarized politics, dysfunctional government, and selfish elites, and people losing faith that the system can work for them. And that's been where we've been headed for the past three decades or more. And as they explored potential solutions, it's really complicated because you can find counter arguments for almost anything that we could do or the government could do to attempt to solve this, this wide gap of wealth and on also other markers like life expectancy. He pointed out that one of the strongest predictors of voting in this past election had to do with life expectancy in different communities. It's not talked about much. But a wealth tax, for instance, 
could be good, could lead people to find ways around it. Inheritance tax sounded interesting, increasing that so that you can't just earn exorbitant amounts of wealth and then provide for your family for a thousand years. That absolutely destroys the American dream. There's no American dream when a small group of people have all of the wealth and all the resources and all the tools and all the access to education, all the opportunity, essentially. Even Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger were saying in, in a conversation decades back that, that there needs to be equality of opportunity. Well, with all of the with all of this in the hands of very few, that, that becomes impossible. Right? Now you're just talking about the lottery of birth. There's no way people can make up that lost ground. And others argue that, well, the floor is so much higher than it was before. I have considered that at other times, thinking, yeah, you know, we all have the internet, we have so many people, even in poverty, can have access to to phones and apps and streaming services. But I'm still not sure that that means the floor is higher. I mean, I see millennials working hard or not being able to work hard now in the pandemic and the economic crisis, but prior to that, working hard, even working two jobs, and not really getting closer to owning their own home. That's part of why the mental health part of this crisis is affecting young people more. And they're feeling ashamed because they think there's something they're not doing. And, and other older people who don't really see things clearly think that they worked harder than them. And no, I, I can remember even 25 years ago, people with no education at all going to, to just work any labor job, any factory job, and make enough money to buy a house. And that, that's just not the case anymore. So we have that on top of the racial inequities, gender inequities, and so on. So if we don't make progress there, then I think the, the contract of cooperation is going to break down. And also politics has become like religion. And I think we got to transcend that. My, my brother was asking me about religion, and, and I was saying, I think, I think people are much less religious, right? In the sense that they're not as active in the five major world religions, but they're not less religiously minded. We haven't actually outgrown religion. We're just engaging with politics in the way that we did with religion. It's becoming people's worldview, loyalty to certain, certain factions or certain movements, supersedes critical thinking sometimes. There's so much here, this could, that could be a whole other episode. So anyways, this episode is not meant to minimize any of that, but I just wanted to give some thought to this to say that the meat of this episode is actually about spiritual growth and transcending one's circumstances, finding the wisdom in one's frustration, and 
realizing who you really are, finding inner peace, and letting that transform you into a genuinely kind and loving human being. I wanted to read to you a quote that a friend of mine shared on social media from Jack Kerouac that I also think summarizes the, the deeper truth of what I'm about to share in this episode. I have lots of things to teach you now in case we ever meet concerning the message that was transmitted to me under a pine tree in North Carolina on a cold winter moonlit night. It said that nothing ever happened, so don't worry. It's all like a dream. Everything is ecstasy, inside. We just don't know it because of our thinking minds. But in our true, blissful essence of mind is known that everything is alright forever and forever and forever. Close your eyes, let your hands and nerve ends drop. Stop breathing for three seconds. Listen to the silence inside the illusion of the world, and you will remember the lesson you forgot, which was taught in immense Milky Way soft cloud innumerable worlds long ago, and not even at all. It is all one vast awakened thing. I call it the golden eternity. It is perfect. We were never really born. We will never really die. It has nothing to do with the imaginary idea of a personal self, other selves, many selves, everywhere. Self is only an idea, a mortal idea. That which passes into everything is one thing. It's a dream already ended. There's nothing to be afraid of and nothing to be glad about. I know this from staring at mountains months on end. Do you think the emptiness of space will ever crumble away? Mountains will crumble, but the emptiness of space, which is the one universal essence of mind, the vast awakenerhood, empty and awake, will never crumble away because it was never born. The world you see is just a movie in your mind. Rocks don't see it. Bless and sit down, forgive and forget. Practice kindness all day to everybody, and you will realize you're already in heaven now. That's the story. That's the message. Nobody understands it. Nobody listens. They're all running around like chickens with heads cut off. I will try to teach it, but it will be in vain. That's why I'll end up in a shack, praying and being cool, and singing by my wood stove making pancakes. Once again, thank you so much to those who are supporting this podcast and this work on Patreon. If you would like to become a Kind Mind patron, you can go to patreon.com forward slash kindmind, and there you will find three options, three tiers of support, which will give you access to different features, including the Kind Mind Studio, where you will find more than a dozen guided meditations to build your mindfulness practice. I keep a collection of growing wisdom stories, bedtime stories, or just stories to chill out to. The most recent one is called The Legend of the Blue Rose. There is mystic poetry, some of my favorite, that I read and record and share there. Uh, There is a growing recommended reading list. I try to add 10 or so books every once in a while. So please take a look at that. I would really appreciate your support. It keeps this commercial free and keeps this space honest and allows me to be able to take more time to add more content. There's a lot more episodes to go. I have about 10 others that are recorded that have yet to be edited and uploaded. 
So I look forward to doing that with, with your help. Also, I am working on multiple books this year. I don't know if they'll be ready this year, but I'm working towards it. There's a learning curve for me. I've never written books. So if you know anything about that world of writing, publishing, editing, and so on, and like to give me some guidance or direction, I would be open to that. You can contact me on social media at Michael Todd Fink on Instagram or Facebook or through my website, michaeltoddfink.com. But I wish you all the best in this new year. I send my love and kindness to all of you, especially those who really have a lot of hardship right now and, and to those who have lost loved ones, either through the pandemic or through discord. Heartbreak is, is so painful. I was thinking recently that the only time I really felt like life was long was when my heart was broken a few times. One time I'm a full-grown man and so sad to go through a breakup. And my mom was telling me that it was one of the hardest times for her as a mom because she couldn't just fix it. And I'm a full-grown adult at this time. But as a kid, she can jump in, she can protect you, she can... She could do so much for me. So it, it's the only time, for me at least, that life feels long. Because when you think that you're going to be with somebody, when you have that expectation, so this was important for my growth and it leads into the theme of this podcast, then it's like the future has just melted. You're wearing snowshoes and you can't take them off. So now everything is cumbersome. Or the future has just burned ash, but you still have to walk through it. So now you're like a ghost. So it seems very long to have this ghostly existence until you heal, until the heart breaks open and you become better become a better version of yourself, wiser. But otherwise, the brevity of life is always in our front. And if we tune into that, it will make this topic more salient. Because pain, regret, in the context of the shortness of life, It helps you get real about where your focus really needs to be. And for an artist, I think this this comes naturally. When you're building something that there's not enough time to build, you're never going to feel like life is long. And that will start to eliminate that burden. And then things like pain well, does the pain hold me back from building what I'm building? If so, then I will have to take care of that. If not, or if this regret doesn't actually hold me back from building my life, then maybe I don't need to even deal with that. Not everything needs to be healed. Not every problem needs to be solved. If we know why we're here. Happy to share this space with you and grateful for you. 
I hope you can help this work grow. Please share it with a friend. Leave a comment. Or leave a review. Rate it if you can on Apple Podcasts. And uh, stay in touch. Thank you. I put wisdom in front of frustration because there is the opportunity for something special when you're dissatisfied. The word frustration comes from Latin frustatio, which meant a deception, which I think is fitting because in our country, a lot of the unrest is due to feeling deceived, whether by government or capitalism or history or possibly ourselves because at the root of so much frustration personally is some kind of wound. There's a story I came across about how people in the East long ago were able to direct water buffaloes, giant mammals. They would create some kind of ulcer on the body of the large beast and then the equivalent of a shepherd would use a stick and try to direct the water buffalo and if it wouldn't obey the command it would use the stick to poke the wound and then the water buffalo would jump and be receptive to the instructions and so the water buffalo is thinking that the frustration, the pain, is coming from the boy with the stick. But really, the stick is merely the trigger for something that's inside the water buffalo, the unhealed wound. Usually, frustration includes some kind of want, and then a roadblock, and Sometimes that can lead to aggression. So in psychology, going back 90 years, there was a, a lot of research into aggression and its connection to frustration. In 1939, I think it was, there was a, a study of a few hundred college students. And the psychologists asked them to stay up all night at a particular location and they promised the subjects food and drinks and cigarettes, other things that might be enjoyable and when you're trying to stay up all night. So when the students arrived for the test or for the experiment, they found that everything they were promised was denied to them. So they started getting frustrated, thinking the, the study was bullshit. But meanwhile, the researchers are observing their reaction and they're starting to express their frustration and become aggressive and talk about psychologists in general. Are they all just sadists in disguise? Things like that. And this led to the 
frustration aggression hypothesis that nearly all aggression is preceded by some kind of frustration. But later it's been revealed that that's an oversimplification. But follow-up studies also showed something interesting about aggression and its displacement. So there was a study done with rats and frustration and aggression, putting roadblocks to what the rats want and making it clear that this other rat is the obstacle to what the first rat wants, and so they might fight. But then the rat that stands in the way of what the primary rat wants, when that rat, that's the roadblock, is removed and replaced with a doll as a substitute, the frustrated rat still attacks the doll. So the idea here of uh, frustration, aggression, displacement hypothesis is that we can really take out our frustration on the wrong people. And I think in family life, it's, it's pretty common that you know, one parent is trying to do everything for the children, other parent is maybe more neglectful in a divorce process, but the children take out their frustration on the parent that is more engaged, more caring. Or a parent, feeling frustrated at work, comes home and is aggressive towards family. So where's the wisdom in any of that? Well, through mindfulness, like we're studying and practicing, it's worth meeting the difficult in your life. Because ordinarily when we get triggered, when we get frustrated, we want to remove the roadblock. But oftentimes, there's no clear obstacle. It's not clear who we're supposed to fight. And that's when it's worth recognizing what's going on inside of us. Where's the wound inside of us? Only so that we can take care of the wound, whether it's psychological, emotional, or spiritual, so we can address that, but also so that we don't abandon our values, so that we don't become out of character around other people that really have no role in our frustration. What a strange quirk of evolution, but it probably had some some benefit. Perhaps when so many animals were competing for the same desires, it might have been beneficial to start attacking anyone and anything when you're frustrated. But as we grow and evolve, we can start to become self-aware and realize that's not helpful. I'm also wondering, as the challenges uh, continue, what good might be possible? Now, I mean, a lot of people are very skeptical that things are going to get better. But, ordinarily, when you are frustrated or burned out, like at work, you look forward to taking a vacation and getting away from it all somewhere. Well, where can you do that now? 
It's strange because even if you can go somewhere, if like something's open, you can't really get away from it all wherever you can go, right? Without that opportunity for exodus, will people make a pilgrimage in their own heart? Will they embark on an inner pilgrimage? Because when everything starts to cave in on you, you have nowhere else to go. That could really lead to a spiritual revolution, a spiritual awakening, like a collective awakening. When an individual feels like there's a whole bunch of coincidences, like was talked about in the recent podcast on synchronicity. If I have a dream and that comes true and then I'm seeing a person I was just thinking about or I'm thinking about someone and they call, our mind doesn't go to, all right, what wealthy person is controlling my dreams and creating these coincidences? We look beyond ourselves. We think, oh, maybe there's some meaning to the matrix. Or maybe there's a sixth sense that I haven't cultivated yet. Or maybe God is out there orchestrating things. But when a series of coincidences happen for the collective, it's like, has to be something inside of the system. I'm not saying which is true or which is false. I'm only pointing to the inconsistency. I do think in these challenging times, what's lacking is investigation, like really deep questioning about what is real. Because when you start to really look deep at the frustration, you, you do ultimately come back to your own wounds. And so there ought to be a balance, right, between how much we're trying to change others and how much we're trying to change ourselves. If we would all agree that there are people that are more mature, more ethical than we are, then how much time ought to be spent trying to get others to where we are and how much time should be spent trying to get ourselves to where people more advanced than us are. To only try to get others up to where you are seems hypocritical. Again, I don't know what that right balance is, but it's something that's worth thinking about at the very least. Also, one of the words for frustration in Sanskrit and Pali is dukkha. Dukkha is loosely translated to suffering, but I prefer the translation unsatisfactoriness because I think that includes all of the various and subtle levels of suffering. Because a lot of times people would say, well, frustration is not suffering. Suffering is much more serious. But it's on the continuum of suffering. And Dukkha has two parts, Du and Ka, K-H-A. Du literally means bad. And Ka means emptiness or space or ether. But I would also translate that as dream. Whatever it is that our dreams are happening in, that mind space, 
that virtual space of mental projection or astral space. You may be familiar with the word Akasha, like Akashic records. That's like uh, a mythological concept of records being kept in the ether. But the point here is that do, bad, and ka, if we take the dream interpretation, then dukkha, or suffering, or frustration, means a bad dream. And sukha, which is the opposite, sukha means happiness, su is good, ka, dream, so happiness is a good dream. Good dream, bad dream. Now, if life is a, but a dream, then what would the ultimate goal be in a dream? The point would be to wake up from the dream. Now, which of the two is going to help you wake up? A good dream or bad dream? If you really wanted to wake up, a bad dream is going to facilitate that or could serve as the catalyst for waking up. That's why I think it's appropriate that we put the word dream in front of happy things. My dream job. My dream house. My dream life. My dream partner. My dream love. Because all those things tether the person to the dream boat. Keep you... inside of the illusion. But misery can really open one's eyes. It makes you think. So inside of hardship is the seed of clarity. That's what we ought to be looking for when we feel frustrated. We, we ought to meet it and not try to escape it or avoid it by just finding something happy or pleasant so as to continue the dream. We can use that as a reminder to simply wake up. And how do you wake up? People wake up from their deception by asking again and again and again what is true. And you can't skip over things. You can't say, well, I know this thing about the world is true. Because you've included the word I. I know. Well, have we defined what I is? So then eventually you get back to your own self, and as you dive deep into what the self is, you start realizing all this stuff that's not you. Let any frustration in life, especially this kind of collective frustration, be the opportunity to embark on an inner pilgrimage. So many uh, spiritual masters in life or at, at least in scriptures and in mythology, have awakened because of suffering, because of frustration. If you take the Bhagavad Gita from the Mahabharata in the Indian epic, the first chapter of the Gita, the Gita is the sixth book of the Mahabharata, which has 18 books. Inside of the sixth book, the Bhagavad Gita, you have 18 chapters. 
this book is considered the Bible of the Hindus because it deals entirely with yoga and realization, liberation. So a little background prior to chapter one of the Gita, you have two families that are in conflict, the Pandavas and the Kauravas. The Pandavas are noble, kind, loving, spiritual clan of brothers that had the ethical right to rule the kingdom. The eldest brother, Yudhisthira, was supposed to be the king, but through some deception, the core of a clan has taken over the power, taken over the throne. So they have decided to go to war. But the Kauravas and Pandavas are cousins. And Arjuna, the middle brother, is a little bit more spiritually advanced. And therefore, he feels like he should refuse the call to war. So he's telling his chariot driver, Krishna. Krishna is supposed to be the incarnation of the Lord of Wisdom. He's confiding in his chariot driver, Krishna, that he doesn't want to fight because he doesn't want to kill his cousins. And he's extremely frustrated with that proposition of war. And so the first, this is where it begins. This is the first chapter of the Gita. And it's called Arjuna Vishada Yoga, which means the yoga of dejection. So this ancient scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, considered like the holiest book of India, begins with a chapter called the Yoga of Frustration, or the Yoga of Dejection. Now the reason it begins there is because if Arjuna wasn't frustrated, if things were going on pleasantly, he would not be thinking about what is real and what is the right action and what his true purpose was and his reason for being here. Once he opens up to Krishna, Krishna blesses him and reveals himself to be the wise sage that he is. And Arjuna, being dejected enough, humbles himself and receives the, the wisdom that Krishna is offering. And so it ultimately leads to Arjuna's liberation. But then it ends with him entering into battle. So I think the interesting plot twist there is that when he realizes who he is, he doesn't have to fight against nature anymore. Whatever's happening, whatever's unfolding is no longer in conflict with him because he's resolved all of his old wounds, having all of his doubts cleared about his true nature, about the self, he can just move forward. He can march and he can enter into battle and do whatever is, is happening naturally. You also see, even in more recent times, when I read The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, I think somewhere in the early part of that now famous book, 
he was seriously depressed. And there was one line that resonated with me. He said he was so depressed that he had this thought, I can't live with myself. And that sparked his spiritual awakening. Because when he realized what he had said, I can't live with myself. Then the follow-up to that was a question. Are there two me's? One who can't live with the other? And then he became curious to know, well, who am I? Who's the one saying I can't live with whom? And going deeper and deeper into that question, he figured out the truth of his identity. Reflect on this dream analogy, that life is a dream, and the point, at least for spiritual seekers, is to wake up, whatever that means. And when we're seeking happiness, what are we really searching for in happiness? Are we searching for a better illusion than the previous one? If so, I mean, that's okay. It's, but it's good to, to get clear with ourselves and no better time to do it than when there's frustration. So because of that experience with Arjuna and Krishna, in the additional scriptures about Krishna, his devotees pray for hardship when he leaves. Whenever Krishna departs, the real de devotees ask him to bless them with difficulty because they're afraid or concerned that if their life gets too good, that they'll forget about Krishna, which just simply means they'll forget about the truth. So now we're getting into religion a little bit. You also see something similar in the Bible, in the Gospel, something that Jesus says about it being very difficult to enter into heaven if you're rich. There's nothing inherently wrong with whatever one has or doesn't have, but from a wisdom standpoint, not a literal standpoint, that could, that could mean when the dream is good, sukha, there may be less urge to wake up. So again, dukkha is the unsatisfactoriness. Being dis dissatisfied, one aspires to something, something better. But if you're just aspiring for sukha, then you're not going to get out of the dream. So when there's frustration, you could use that as a means to getting out of the dream altogether. Dukkha is getting what you don't want in this world, in this dream world not getting what you do want or having once had what you want then losing that those three things represent what suffering is and the buddha in buddhism talks about dukkha first in the four noble truths that the world which he called samsara which means the dream or the the cycle of 
births and deaths and being on a wheel, some sort of a wheel, but it's like a dream wheel. You got Dukkha on, on one side and Sukha on the other side. And the release from Dukkha or the release from Samsara is not getting more Sukha happiness. This morning, I got a, a message that there was a little video from my guru in India about how suffering can be good. In it, he said that uh, for those who believe in karma, anytime you're frustrated or anytime there is some suffering, it means that some of our negative karma is being paid off. So anytime you're having a good dream, you're getting the fruits of whatever one thinks they did good. So the the dream self thinks of it thinks it does good things and bad things and then has good and bad dreams as a result. But so long as you're inside of the dream, anytime there's a bad dream, it means that some debt is being fulfilled. And to use any suffering as the tool for healing. A thorn can be used to remove the thorn that's stuck in your hand. So with the thorn, you remove the thorn. Similarly, each difficulty has within it the potential to eradicate all difficulties with the proper understanding. So how can we practice meeting the difficult? I think start by paying attention to your own mind and body. Start with the body. When you're frustrated, instead of focusing all your attention externally on the thing that seems to be standing in the way of what you want, Turn your attention inward and see where in your body you are experiencing the frustration. Is it tightness in your chest? Is it a headache? Is it a knot in your stomach? And then notice what thoughts arise. Like, I want this, but this person won't let me. And then notice where the urge is. Is there an urge to be mean? Is there an urge to become passive-aggressive? Is there an urge to withdraw, to avoid, to hide, to drink, to eat, to isolate, to self-harm? And just notice those things. The more you get used to turning your attention inward and studying the self, the less overpowered you'll be by the frustration. And a lot of this comes back to expectation. Expectation can be the root cause of the frustration and the things that happen around us or the events in the world are the triggers, just like the trigger of a car is turning the ignition. But it wouldn't be true to say that turning the key makes the car go to all the places that it goes. I'll finish this part with 
a little story that comes from the Upanishads. Upanishads are from the the four Vedas, ancient scriptures of India. The Upanishads are a section at the end of each Veda. The philosophy is known as Vedanta, which literally means the end of the Veda. The Veda is the name of the scriptures. But Veda also means knowledge. Anta means end. The Upanishads also deal with the end of knowledge. End of knowledge meaning the final truth. Anyways, in the Upanishads there's a story about two birds in the same tree. One bird is below and one bird is up high. The bird below is restless, frustrated, and it's moving from branch to branch. It's looking for flowers. It's looking for a mate. And the other bird up top is still silent, peaceful. And after some time, the bird below becomes so frustrated with the restlessness that it can't continue in that manner. Looking up, it sees the other bird free from the restlessness. And the, the bird below is thinking, this other bird is just like me, looks like me, built like me. Why is that bird so peaceful and I'm so upset? So this is the beginning. This is Arjuna Vishada Yoga. Then the lower bird makes its way up to the other bird and starts to become introspective, curious, seeking. And ultimately, the, the two birds are not separate. They're two aspects of our own being. That's what they represent in the Upanishad. You could think of it as lower nature and higher nature, or lower self, higher self. But it's more like ego and truth, or non-self and freedom from self. We have a, a dream character, the, the role that we play, the relationships that we have, the possessions that we have, and we're constantly absorbed in the drama of the character that we're playing. And so all of that makes up the non-self, the bird below. But behind all that, you have awareness. You have pure consciousness. Not even the mind. Because what is the mind but a bundle of thoughts? If you're not thinking, there's no mind. And thoughts aren't something that you can grab. You can't grab a, th a thought and say, oh, here I am. It's like taking water out of a river and saying, I have the river. No, it's just water in a glass at that point. That's what the self is like. That's what the mind is like. It's like a river. As long as there are thoughts flowing, it feels like we have a mind. And we think that thinking is the self. But there's no thoughts in deep sleep. There's no thoughts in 
very deep meditation. And even to have fewer thoughts by trying to meditate or by practicing mindfulness, one can get a sense that the thoughts are events and you can pay attention to them but not be identified with them. So let each frustration be an opportunity to go deeper into anything. You can start somewhere up on what seems like the surface and start to think critically and deeply about anything. We'll stop there. Last thing though, the great sage Ramakrishna of the 20th century in India, who was a devotee of the Divine Mother, said that uh, the fastest way to achieve liberation is to cry for three days. It's funny because he's saying that if you can just remain that dejected, that dissatisfied, then God or the universe or your true self has no choice but to bestow the grace of realization upon you. The thing is, it's the fastest or simplest way according to him, but he knows nobody will do it. They won't be able to cry for that long. They won't be able to cry for three days straight. They'll find themselves distracted long before that. No, these aren't just ideas. Do I have any advice uh, for somebody being canceled from one culture? So, this is uh, n nothing new. Excommunication and ostracizing people has been a tool of communities forever. Clans, tribes, to try to get conformity. But I think in the uh, search or the quest for, for truth, we ought to realize that any uh, group or club or religion or ideology is a cult at the end of the day. And that's not to say that it's bad. I mean, I think cult or culture is useful up until a point. And if we expected that we would always belong to this group, to this cult, to this family, to this marriage, then that's the wound inside of you. And when somebody comes along with the right poke, uh, then it triggers us, right? But if we knew ahead of time, I, I don't, I don't belong to any particular cult alone. Uh, it's just a construct. Now, that's not to diminish the real pain of uh, people losing their livelihoods for trying to be honest, for trying to get into dialogue about the issues. You know, it, it, there's. There's some problems there, for sure. To not be able to talk in an open way about justice or racism is myopic. But when you're not accepted by one group, it's going to be a frustration. And, it, and it's an opportunity to search inside of yourself. Thank you. Liberation can be so hard won in terms of healing or breakthrough. But on the tales of that liberation, it seems we can go straight into frustration or new wound, not the same wound. What to say about regrouping? 
I'm not sure if I understand the question completely, but I think we all probably have several core or deep wounds from our story, from our the story of ourself, which probably includes something from childhood. So, yeah, just because you get some clarity about one wound, like, oh, you know what? When this person doesn't pay attention to me, I finally figured out that it's triggering uh, some neglect from my childhood and now it's playing out in my relationship and if I can really heal that then attention or lack of attention doesn't create the same frustration in me. So yeah, there isn't necessarily a new wound but there's just kind of some different flavors of frustration that, that might be the flavor of the month and just because you get some clarity on one doesn't mean that it's over. And, and lib that's not liberation. I mean, liberation in the deepest sense would be the realization of all that we're not. And all that we're not includes all of the, the wounds and, and uh, false identifications and attachments. Look for the attachment. When, when you're triggered, when you're frustrated, look what you're attached to or craving for. Is it something that was taken away? Something that I was attached to getting and now I won't be able to get? And then investigate the attachment. What is the attachment? What, is it, what does it do? What fear is it protecting? I think ultimately if you keep going, if you keep drilling into that, you hit bedrock at there's a fear of no self, no existing. Oh, you know, like when people lose their career or like uh, an athlete retires, their identity was the athlete. And so the fear is that uh, I don't exist even if I have money and all that, I mean, my identity is gone. So if you keep digging into the attachment, you can get release from that before impermanence, because impermanence is already inevitable. So this is about preparation for impermanence. Thank you. With all of the collective uprising, because this uh, unrest isn't just confined to the United States. I mean, I would imagine there are even things happening in Brazil and South America related to what's going on in America, to, to the pandemic, to justice. I mean, I think the good part of this is it's, it's inspiring a new generation or younger generation to question everything. They may be missing the mark, you know, like through displacement theory. So they're frustrated and maybe sometimes it's well-targeted and other times it's misdirected. But I do see that younger generations are less less religious. And I, I don't think that's that trend is going to go away. I think that's all right as long as... Uh, like I said, as long as there's a like an inner pilgrimage. I don't think that that will be, um, I don't think that that can, that can be withheld from the Middle East forever. 
but it's certainly a, another another problem. I mean, there's a there's a war of ideas throughout the world, and some of you probably saw this video yesterday or today. Somebody was showing me a video about what's true and not true about the pandemic. And what's really fascinating, Colin, is that people are so sure of themselves. You know, jihadists are 100% sure. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to do things like uh, suicide bomb a place if you weren't pretty sure that that was going to lead to paradise and 72 virgins or whatever. Uh, so that is the, the power of belief. But I think we're getting to a, a place in evolution where the role of belief is breaking down. I mean, bottom line is, belief means you don't know what's true. Otherwise, there's no need to believe. If my friend is sitting right next to me, my imaginary friend, but if a real friend is sitting right next to me, and I get a call saying, hey, do you know where the friend is? I wouldn't say, I believe they're here. Let's say they're here, you know? So anytime we use belief, it's like a placeholder. And that's uh, unfortunately what it's like for a lot of religious thinkers. There's the belief and now I'm done. I have a belief and so I don't have to do anything more. It's just the beginning though. And I, I do think that what we need to be educating people about is how healthy is it to deliver these beliefs to young people before critical thinking. We answer the toughest questions for our kids in society, but before they have critical thinking skills. So we answer like, this comes from God, this comes from the tooth fairy, these presents come from Santa. And, and much of it is all in the name of good fun, but we probably have to start thinking about like how we teach these things. Just because something can answer something doesn't mean it's true. So I don't know, those are my, that's my two cents. Thank you. I was reading this book where the wise person who's awake, let's say awakened, he's asked, you know, how concerned are you about helping people to wake up, or helping people to be liberated or grow spiritually? And he says, for a person who's awake, it's about as concerning as it is for ordinary people to want to rescue people who are having a dream or sleeping at night. It's not like you feel any special. However, if you know your friends or family or fellow brothers and sisters are having a nightmare, then it's a little different, right? Like, I don't need to wake up my family from a dream. But I might wake them up if I know that they're suffering in the dream. So that's, that's, that's all it is. You know, when people are suffering, if you knew somebody was suffering for whatever reason, even if they didn't understand the full reason, if I know somebody's having a nightmare, there's no real threat. But I'll probably wake them up. I mean, I ought to give some time to it. Some time out of compassion, helping people that are suffering. But understanding that compassion isn't necessarily 
the same as uh, waking up ourselves or understanding the truth of suffering. <laughs> 